Hi, I'm a Calgary Post media columnist, ironically chiding Trudeau for ethics violations, Robbie Krieger-Smith. And I'm the Calgary mayor cutting $60 million from police and transit so I can lose $47 million on an arena, Deirdre Mitchell-McLean. This is the Political R&D Podcast. Hi, Deirdre. Hi, Robbie. So what's today's episode called? Today's episode is Karma Chameleon. Karma Chameleon. <laughs> and we are recording at the wonderful time of... 2.35 in the morning. <laughs> political junkies with no lives. <laughs> it's Thursday night. Like, who who has anything to do on a Thursday night? Technically, it's Friday morning, but yep. <laughs> anyways, anyways. But... I actually was going to bring this up. Vacation time is over. Vacation right? time is over. We're all getting back into the swing of things. It was, we we had a couple of weeks off and. Yep. <laughs> and then we needed a week to, you know, adjust. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, the only thing that hasn't returned from vacation is Saved by the Bell, our mm-hmm. last episode. <laughs> That was a secret, Robbie, and we weren't going to talk about it ever again. Just double down if it came up. <laughs> it's there. Just look harder. It's in That's the subscriber-only right. section. Yes. <laughs> okay. So today we're going to talk about the Ethics Commissioner's Report. So we're looking at federal politics. Mm-hmm. And for the second time, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has been found guilty of violating the Conflict of Interest Act. Really? It's the second time? Second time. First <laughs> prime minister in history, and he's done it twice. Wait a minute. Okay. Okay. Harper was different. He was yep. found in contempt of parliament. Right. Okay. First prime minister in the entire Commonwealth to be found in contempt of parliament. All right. So, Trudeau is found to have contravened the ethics... What what is it? The Conflict of Interest Act. Conflict of Interest Act. Yeah. Okay. And did you happen to listen to uh, That's Mr. Neal's podcast with Ishat Risa? I have not yet, but I understand you have. I did, and it was actually extremely informative, and, well, it formed my satire today. Mm. <laughs> and. Yeah, actually, that's completely unrelated. It was not satirical. <laughs> Their <laughs> podcast was extremely serious and had a lot of it. It had a fantastic foundation for anyone who's really looking for some legal insight into the election commissioner's report. So, uh, I, eth- I, ethics I, commissioner. Yeah, did I yeah. not? Say that? <laughs> you said election commissioner. <laughs> it is two thirty in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll go with that. So uh, a quick rundown for those who don't know. The ethics commissioner, his name is Mario Dion. 
-hmm. and he was probing the SNC-Lavalin affair and specifically whether or not the pressure that Justin Trudeau applied to Jody Wilson-Raybould was a contravention of the Conflict of Interest Act. And in his findings, he found, or in his report rather, he found the Prime Minister directly and through his senior officials used various means to exert influence over Ms. Wilson-Raybould. The authority of the Prime Minister and his office was used to circumvent, undermine, and ultimately attempt to discredit the decision of the Director of Public Prosecutions, as well as the authority of Ms. Wilson-Raybould as the Crown's Chief Law Officer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sassy. Yeah, yeah I'm. I'm. I'm uh, I do see from the very beginning. From the very beginning of this issue, when Jody Wilson-Raybould first testified, I had a problem with her testimony. Not not because I disagreed with anything that she said, but because of the fact that. When she was giving her testimony, everything was from the perspective that she was the attorney general. And that is not her only role. Yeah. This is this is actually where I had the most the most issue. Because she does have two roles. She she has the role that is supposed to be uh, free from influence as the attorney general, but she also has the role as the justice minister, which is part of cabinet and should be a part of the conversation. She should be expecting to have conversations with her fellow cabinet ministers, with everybody else, because she's the justice minister. What bothered me during her testimony was that all of the undue influence, quote unquote, came as she was wearing the hat of attorney general. But she also wears the hat of the justice minister at all times. This is actually the problem that I find with these two roles being given to one person is is the fact that she must wear both hats at every time. And to me, if she's wearing both hats, it shouldn't have been a conflict of interest. So the ethics commissioner does discuss and address that in his and report. And disagreed with me, yeah. Yeah, and disagreed <laughs> with you. And in his interpretation, and this is where there's some gray area, because this is a relatively new act, and there's only been three people who've held the position of the conflict of interest and ethics commissioner. And uh, so this is a quasi-judicial position, but there isn't a great amount of case history um, or interpretation of this law that exists. But uh, the current commissioner, Mario Dion, said that it's not for Mr. Trudeau or for me or for any other administrative body to judge whether an attorney general has properly or sufficiently considered the public interest in matters of criminal prosecution or, for that matter, any other aspect of their decision-making process. 
and then goes on to address the fact that the Prime Minister's office had made at least three attempts on November 22nd, December 5th, and December 18th, 2018, to persuade Ms. Wilson-Raybould directly and through her Chief of Staff to re-examine the idea of seeking external advice on the matter. It must be reiterated that these legal opinions were circulated and their contents discussed during ongoing legal proceedings involving the prosecution service before the Federal Court of Canada and unbeknownst to the Attorney General. And so the thing that he's taking issue with is he believes and states that the Justice Minister, yes, does have to have these political conversations, but once the Department of Public Prosecutions moves towards a trial and there are ongoing legal proceedings, that's when the Attorney General needs to be wearing the hat of the Attorney General and can no longer factor in public interest or political considerations in directing the DPP to take a different decision. And so that appears to be the line that he's drawn is that once the legal proceedings have commenced, that those can no longer be a consideration and that Trudeau on numerous occasions following that was trying to attempt to influence or change the outcome. The other consideration that comes up is if a private third party entity receives a benefit from the direction by the prime minister. And so he does address that in his report as well, that whether it's intended or not, and the prime minister ought to know that the third party would receive a benefit from it, a private third party cannot receive benefit from an office holder directing. <laughs> Robbie can see all of this. No one else can. <laughs> he's seen me struggling with this ever since he started to bring that up. Um, the the whole that is another thing that really bothers me is that a third party cannot benefit. Explain to me what the Venn diagram looks like of public policy that doesn't benefit somebody else. So specifically, this relates, though, to a legal proceeding, not to legislation. Okay, but the DPP was legislation also about a legal proceeding, but also about a public interest. Yes, and so... Again, the ethics commissioner <laughs> points out the fact that the deferred prosecution agreement, the DPA, so, right. you know, yeah. we're using a whole ton of um, acronyms and legal <laughs> jargon here. So the deferred prosecution agreement is something that exists in other OECD countries. Mm -hmm. And SNC-Lavalin had been lobbying for the federal liberals to implement a deferred prosecution agreement framework, which would allow them to escape a criminal conviction, but enter into a compliance agreement, which right. would then be monitored. Right. Because SNC had been lobbying for this, it should have excluded them from receiving it if it was put into legislation. Because they were registered as a lobbyist and actively lobbying for a piece of legislation. Anything they don't actually get. <laughs> I mean, like, I just, just, just move this to any other 
situation where a lobbyist for a company or not for a company, like, I mean, come on, we do things all the time that but, benefit. But, but we're specifically talking about changing criminal legislation to allow someone to avoid a criminal conviction. But only if, and that was the other thing, right? It was an only if, right? If this company had not changed their practices and all of these other things, then they would not actually be in contention to have that DPA. Agreed. Yeah. However, <laughs> the charges that they're facing are for trying to influence officials in a foreign country, and they're doing the exact same thing in Canada. But do you remember... Well, what what company doesn't lobby the government of Canada or the government of whichever province they're in? The, the difference that I see, though, is that they're lobbying for changes to criminal legislation that would affect charges that they're facing. And there was already a criminal case in process when they started to lobby this and Beyond's own investigation and testimony from the PMO shows that they continued to meet even after the director of public prosecutions had agreed to or decided to proceed with charges. Okay, so that, all right. I just want to say there was a journalist who wrote a fabulous thread when this first came out and said this is what you do in foreign countries because this is what foreign countries allow. This is what foreign countries operate under. Uh, one of the, so he was a journalist and he said that basically he was told he wouldn't get his equipment unless he paid them to let him have his equipment. And mm -hmm. it was his equipment to begin with. Yes, he paid for it because that's just, it operates under different rules. And this is actually something that bothers me just a tad, is that we are regulating how a Canadian company acts in a foreign country. Now, I'm not saying that bribing officials is a good thing at all, but that thread made me really look at it and say, well, you know, if you can't get your equipment across the border without this guy getting $50 from you to bring it across the border, then what do you do? You, you pay him the 50 bucks. Uh, so yeah, not talking uh, about $50. Yeah, no, I agree. The thing that I have concerns with is things like flying Gaddafi's son to Canada and buying him prostitutes while he's here. That's just, you know, like people being friendly. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. okay. <laughs> you, you sure won this argument. <laughs> All I, so, okay. So, okay. So I so, might have to be able to back that up. <laughs> so I, I know it's a bit of an extreme, um, but I think it's important that if we have Canadian companies going to other countries, you know, there's a difference between 
paying off a guard to be able to get your equipment across a border or something. And in all seriousness, I think there is a difference between bringing a dictator's son to Canada and paying for hookers for him so that you can get a contract. And even if that's how business is done there, I think that part of what we should do as a soft slash middle power is we should hold ourselves and the companies that do work for our federal government as well, which SNC is one, to a higher standard. And again, this is kind of a more extreme extension of that, but we have Canadian mining companies that go into third world countries in South America and in Africa and they're dumping toxic chemicals their workers have been found to be doing things like murdering indigenous people in the areas raping them and for me i think that those companies should face penalties similar to what they would do or face if they were to conduct themselves that way in canada and that's how you positively influence other countries to have acceptable social social standards we don't say you know at your canadian company you know go operate in this third world country and behave like you're in the banana republic (laughs) what they should do is they should go there and they should hold themselves to a canadian standard and be a beacon for what we can do in the leadership that we should be demonstrating and i believe that snc lavalin failed on that front um, but we're totally off on a different topic than what we no, were. No, but we're about. actually not because this is this is the argument. This is absolutely the argument, and I think that you've you know possibly taken me to task on that because. But you're right. I mean, I fully agree. I fully agree that you know, as a Canadian, when I leave the country, I am. A representative of my country yeah. whether whether i'm tasked with that or not i still am yeah so yeah so that was kind of rough actually thanks robbie no problem <laughs> and so uh, you know i understand that yes companies and lobbyists lobby for legislative changes that benefit them and i i get and i understand that the differences here that i see is that it relates to a change in criminal code and common practice as it relates to uh, a company and how they interact with and receive benefits or contracts from the government. And there's, just politically speaking, the optics stink and they're garbage on this. And you have a prosecutor that's agreed or feels that there's enough evidence to convict a company for corrupt practices and then after that decision is made and for me that's kind of the line that i see is you've already got the criminal proceedings occurring and after those criminal proceedings have started you've got high level members of the prime minister's office the finance minister's office meeting with executives of this company trying to influence or change the outcome of a case that's already in process and before the courts. And for me, that's the part or the piece that's concerning. And then the fact that you have 
Trudeau and his surrogates addressing the fact that he is a Quebec politician and that this is going to make a difference in terms of the outcome of potential elections. And those are things that shouldn't be considered. And regardless of how they're done in other countries, I think we should and need to aspire to be better. And this is a a big complaint, actually, of people on the left and a lot of, quote unquote, common people, (laughs) is that corporations seem to have a different set of laws that applies to them. And to me, this is an example of that occurring. If you yourself were charged with some sort of egregious criminal offense, do you think it would be acceptable for you to try and meet with the justice minister's staff to get the law changed so that murder okay. murder is no longer a criminal offense okay. after your trial started? Hold on, because the DPAs, are not something that are uh they're not unnatural in other countries no they're not that was a big thing when they were trying to bring it in was this is something that is done in other countries and why can't we do it here and so they were like they they had in my mind they had a, a good argument for bringing them in they also had a good argument because in the specific case of SNC Lavalin, they they were a, they were a company that you know they they changed a lot of their management as well. Now, granted, some of that was because they were brought up on charges, yep. <laughs> so you know it was kind of a have to, but. At the same time, they did make those changes. So I'm I'm not, you know, I'm not a I'm not a huge corporate interest, uh, you know, cheerleader. But at the same time, I have to say, number one, Trudeau might be the prime minister, but he is also an elected MP, mm-hmm. and that to me. Again, with this whole conflict of interest commentary, uh, you have you have a prime minister who's not only the leader of the country, but is also an elected representative of a certain area, which might be in Quebec, which might be uh, adversely affected by this uh, by this. Um, by this legal problem. So you have that. He's also the prime minister. So again, over 50% or sorry, about 50% of SNC-Lavalin's jobs or employment is outside of Quebec. So this is not just Quebec that's affected, but it's actually a number of places within the province. And so he he has a number of things to look at and whether we whether we look at it and say well they donated more money to the liberals and therefore he has you know some obligations or or some 
alliances or allegiances to SNC Lavalin, uh, it is. It's a it's a really tough call for me because we make exceptions for companies all the time. And, you know, we're in Alberta. <laughs> we make a lot of exceptions for companies, especially if they revolve around jobs. Now, are there a lot of jobs with SNC-Lavalin? I'm not sure. But I have seen posts from individuals who work for the company who basically said, this has nothing to do with me. Yeah. And and that's probably the strongest case that they have is that the people who are going to be affected by this had absolutely nothing to do with the overseas uh, bribery charges or anything else. This is what makes it problematic because the people who will be affected by it had nothing to do with it. So it okay. it is a tough call. So. The concern or issue is a regulation around procurement in Canada that states that a company that has been found guilty of what SNC has been charged with in Libya can no longer work for Infrastructure Canada and bid on contracts. Yeah. Correct? Yeah. Okay. So that, it, yeah, that's kind of the main. <laughs> yeah. And so he, here's where I think politically the Liberals really shit the bed. Could they change that regulation even if SNC had been found guilty? Technically, yes. They could have done that quietly. They could have done it independently of this. And they could have even done it before SNC was found guilty, assuming they will be, and there probably would have been very little political attention or fallout from that, and they wouldn't have had to try to exert any pressure over the Attorney General. A change like that, a regulatory change like that, can just be made by an order in council, and it likely would have gone completely unnoticed no, until... It would have gone unnoticed. <laughs> Until SNC went to bid on something a couple of years down the road after they may or may not have been found guilty. So you'd kick the ball down the court. You would still have Jody Wilson-Raybould in cabinet. You'd still have Jane Philpott in cabinet. So this is where the liberals have shit the bed on this and have politically miscalculated, number one. Number two, SNC is found guilty and can no longer build on a bid on contracts. Is the government of Canada or Infrastructure Canada going to stop building shit because SNC was found guilty? No. So where are those skilled engineers going to go work? I'm in Alberta. I have no idea. Well, we have a great company in Alberta, in Edmonton, actually, PCL Contractors. <laughs> We also have Stantac. <laughs> okay, so, yes, there, there are other, there are definitely other opportunities for sure. Yeah. So the fact is, the jobs aren't going anywhere. SNC, their current CEO, who I believe is on the way out now, um, 
directly stated when this started to hit the fan that there was never any threat that SNC's head office was going to relocate anywhere else. They're based in Canada. They do work in Canada. Yeah, they wouldn't be able to work for Industry Canada or Infrastructure Canada, but they would try and address that. And at the end of the day, all these construction projects, all of this infrastructure building would still have to go on. Yeah, these people might not be working for SNC-Lavalin, but they could go work for Stantec. They might work for PCL. There would be other people that would step in. It's not like if SNC doesn't exist or can't bid on federal contracts that we're all of a sudden going to stop building infrastructure in Canada, right? It's true. Yeah, it's true. Okay. So the core defense of the Liberals whole reason for putting this in place actually holds no water and as much as it shames me to say this i agree with jagmeet singh <laughs> because the core fundamental principle of their defense isn't logical it's that they need to protect these jobs but these jobs aren't going anywhere it's not like we're going to stop building stuff because snc has been found guilty of corrupt practices assuming that they even were found guilty of corrupt practices which i mean obviously that's a that's a big concern yep. for the company yeah yep absolutely so so anyways i I think there's a couple things for me that stand out here in the ethics commissioner's report is that when a prosecutor has decided to proceed with a case to try and influence a change in law after a case has proceeded and started to move into the court proceedings, that's problematic to have senior officials meeting with senior officials of the prime minister who one of his functions is to uphold the rule of law in Canada and trying to influence changes. Now, the other thing is, is that Dion found that the retired justices from the Supreme Court of Canada had been having discussions with the PMO in his circle about it, an opinion or a change in opinion on whether or not this should be proceeded with. Mm-hmm. And the justice minister slash attorney general had no clue that that had happened. And so what they were trying to do was they were trying to push her to go get a second opinion that they already knew the outcome of. Okay. And just to throw this out there. Yeah. And again, this is from, this is from Neil and uh, Ishat's uh, podcast. When, when she was discussing this, one of the things that she did mention, and again, back to my original issue with Jody Wilson-Rabel during her testimony and the things that she had said, one of the things that Ishat brought up was that if there was uh, inappropriate influence and and she said there was well she said it was inappropriate she said it wasn't illegal yeah for her to have said that and also to like just uh, a lot of things kind of revolve around her role as ag and justice minister mm-hmm. and it's it's actually kind of unfortunate how 
I guess in in my opinion, that the way that it looks is that she possibly was biased against the DPA to begin with. Yep. Yep. So the fact that there were like there were individuals from both PMO as well as the government trying to get her to get that second opinion or to even even really reconsider the option of having that DPA uh you know her her refusal to do that also doesn't look good like i'm i'm not i'm not going to say that that the prime minister's office or the prime minister himself actually have you know, no blame or anything. I'm not going to say that. But what I'm going to say is that I think that there are uh, a little bit of the two sides here. But there's, you know, we're all human and there's two individuals. Yep. Or yep. more individuals. And one of them may have had some bias. And yep. same, same, but I'm not saying that the prime minister's office did not. I'm not saying that they didn't, you know, push for this because it would benefit them in some way or benefit the company in some way. And that's that was actually the one of the overlying things that I looked at as well was how much public policy does not benefit a third party. That that was something with the uh, election commissioners or sorry. Ethics measure commissioner <laughs> the ethics commissioner's report that i really did have to wonder about because it really didn't seem to acknowledge the fact that that a third party can benefit even though it might be a public good and that bothered me because yeah. i i mean well we're in alberta right we just gave tax breaks worth billions of dollars and millions of dollars in my home county to individuals who make probably a fair, decent amount of money. And we're giving them tax breaks because, you know, the market's not so good. Well, that's a public policy that seriously benefits a third party. So why is it that this is such an issue at the federal level when we do it all the time on the provincial level. Mm -hmm. So yeah. that, that was a bit of an issue for me because, because I see it. I, I, I mean, we're living it right now in Alberta and this, this bothers me because why is it different at the federal level? Well, it, it's not so much <laughs> that it's, different and yes there are going to be winners and losers with policy decisions um but it's it's more about the fact that according to current legislation and you can have a debate about whether or not this legislation makes sense whether it needs to be more clearly defined as to you know what inappropriate influence means the relationship between 
you know, what the public interest is and what political considerations are. But the, as the legislation stands, and that's what the ethics commissioner's job is to do, is to judge based on the legislation. He didn't write the legislation. He's not, he's merely responsible for enforcing decisions related to it, right? And so section nine of the acts states that the public office holders are prohibited from using their position to seek to influence a decision to improperly further the private interests of a third party, either by acting outside the scope of their legislative authority or contrary to a rule, a convention or an established process. So when you look at that, this was a contravention of Trudeau's legislative authority. It was contrary to a rule within the act, and it was contrary to a convention or an established process, which is that the director of public prosecutions makes a decision, that decision is final, and it is not to be interfered with by anybody outside of the attorney general who has the final say to sign off on that. And Ultimately, at the end of the day, if the decision was bad, the person who made that decision was put there by Trudeau, <laughs> right? And the other funny thing in all this is that Dion has been criticized in the past as being a liberal partisan and being highly biased. And even his appointment into the conflict of interest and ethics commissioner role was panned by the opposition because it was somebody who was believed to be a liberal partisan highly biased and so and you know biased because he disagrees yep and i mean this report certainly eliminates any sort of um illusion that he's beholden to trudeau for sure yeah yeah and uh so i mean there's quite a few things in here that I believe that the act needs further clarification as to what a conflict of interest looks like, what political considerations are, what national economic interest is, that type of stuff. But the way that the law works and the way that it's currently set up and the person who's responsible for adjudicating this law is the ethics commissioner. And that's the final decision. So like it or not, the person who ultimately is responsible for drafting this legislation and having it be in a state that it is clearly defined is Trudeau. And so, you know, it's kind of, for me, it's kind of hard to feel sorry for the guy like who now twice has been found to be guilty of this and the previous ethics commissioner mary dawson who found him guilty the first time for his trip to the aga khan's island supported dion's out uh decision in this case and said that it's pretty clear-cut based on the way the legislation is wrote now and the actions that were taken that he has in fact contravened this section of the act so okay so if if everything if everything that we've talked about right now, if we're going to go with the very real possibility that the election or that the oh my god ethics, ethics. commissioner is correct, and 
this was a violation and something needs to change. Who do you think, uh, party-wise, can actually most benefit from this? From this decision? Yeah. By the Ethics Commissioner? Yeah. Well, I, I think... Like this, this whole event, this whole, if we want to call it the SNC-Lavalin scandal, who can benefit the most? Which which political party? Um, I think that everybody except the Liberals stands to benefit, to be honest. Um, but it's a mess of the Liberals' own making. And so I think this is kind of actually a good segue into some of the other questions, because whether you think the ethics commissioner got it right or got it wrong, they are quasi-judicial position and they are the final say on this piece of legislation. So, you know, you can debate it all you want, but it's like saying the Supreme Court got it wrong. <laughs> the, the Supreme Court is the final say, right? So if you want to have the Supreme Court make different decisions, you need to make better laws is kind <laughs> of the, and that applies here. Um, but I think all of the parties, except for the Trudeau Liberals, benefit from this ethics commissioner's decision and report. And it is going to be an anchor on the Trudeau government in the next election. And so one of the questions we want to look at and explore is, what, if anything, does this mean for the election? It's not going to knock hardcore liberal partisans away from voting for Trudeau. But what this does do is it knocks soft support, people whose vote is malleable, away from looking at Trudeau. And it pushes them to look at voting for the Green Party. It pushes them to look at voting for the NDP. And the blue liberal vote who might have supported Trudeau is definitely going to go to the Conservative Party. So uh, my prediction is like in politics optics is everything and the optics of this just stinks and in my blog post which you can find at politicalrnd.ca i talked about just how bad the communication and management of this whole situation has been and this could have been managed by better political communications and better strategic thinking and Right from the start, they've really screwed how they've handled this. Mm -hmm. Trudeau's response initially was that the Globe and Mail report by Bob Fife was unfounded, that there was no merit to it. And that then, well, well, and it didn't go well and it hasn't aged well. And as more and more information came out, it painted Trudeau in a less and less flattering light. And then you had uh, Shivana Caesar talk about how he was interacting with her. And you had Jane Philpott then step out of cabinet and say that she no longer had confidence in how it was handled. And that if, you know, she hasn't broken cabinet confidence, but she said there's things that people would find out if cabinet confidence was completely lifted that they couldn't support and wouldn't support. And so knowing that I had to leave cabinet and not be a supporter either. Right. And the ethics commissioner himself says that there's nine people who were 
not able to give full testimony that they felt would help him make his decisions and conclusions because they were restricted by cabinet confidence. Mm. And so again, in my, in my blog, the fact that he was able to come to these conclusions without even having the full picture and having nine people who are currently covered by that cabinet confidence who feel that there's even more to the story shows that there is actually a lot worse circumstances than we've seen. And this is all about political cover. I believe that it would have been better for them to have changed the rules around procurement and done that silently through an order in council that most people wouldn't have paid attention to or drawn a parallel between SNC and that change in regulation for probably several years down the road. And by then, a lot of the players would have changed. You would have been able to just kind of do the Jean Chrétien thing and just kind of brush it off. It's not a big deal. This is how we do business. You know, SNC has paid their debt to society. They've yada, yada, yada. Um, the other thing that I think they could have and should have done is just come out and said, you know, we, we've made some missteps. We're going to sit down with Miss Wilson-Raybould. We're going to talk about how we can do this better. And we accept the fact that she's experienced what she feels to be undue pressure. We accept that it was inappropriate. And we're committed to allowing the process, the judicial process, to play out. And I think that had they done that, it would have... They would have got in front of it and it wouldn't become this big snowball of a story where bits and bits of unflattering information have rolled out over the course of a long period of time. Like this started in February, we're in August. It's six months. Six months in the political world is like a hundred years in the real world. <laughs> and for this to be driving the news cycle for so long. And oh. then... The prime minister says, well, you know what? We've called in the ethics commissioner. I'm fully confident that he's going to do his investigation and that this is no big deal. And it's going to show that no inappropriate pressure was applied and that everything's just good. And that didn't happen. <laughs> and so when you're, you know, strutting around saying, you know, this is overblown. People are just making a big deal of this. It's not a big deal. The ethics commissioner is going to say the same thing. And then the ethics commissioner, who is believed to be highly biased towards you, comes out and says, no, you done shit the bed, boy. <laughs> like, you got nothing. And there's no way to spin this to make it look positive or flattering. Now, I will say the one point that I agree with that a lot of people have brought up is the recommended penalty for this ethics violation is $500. It is considered to be a fairly minor, it's not a criminal act. Mm -hmm. So that needs to be made clear. Um, the RCMP investigating isn't going to have Trudeau appearing in front of a jury. It isn't going to have him in handcuffs. It's an administrative act and it's an administrative penalty that would, it, it's tantamount to speeding. Mm -hmm. But 
again in politics optics is everything and you've now got a lot of canadians who think that trudeau is beholden to corporate boardrooms in montreal and that's his only consideration and that he puts the corporate interest above the laws of our country and right or wrong the laws of our country are as they are he's the person who has the power to make changes to them and as they stand he did break the law okay and i will fully agree with that but i honestly think and i'm to to use your phrasing i'm going to assume that the ndp will shit the bed on this oh of course and, they will <laughs> yeah they, they they could capitalize on this in in a fantastically amazing way i don't think they will no. I, they're like they're but i honestly think that the one party who could benefit most from this issue is the ndp mm-hmm. um but i don't think they will joe uh, so <laughs> i think jody wilson raybould's gonna get reelected. i do I think that this report in a lot of ways exonerates her um, and she's going to be a, a thorn in the side of the Liberal Party as long as Trudeau is the leader. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that this helps the Green Party in a lot of areas of British Columbia in the lower mainland and on the island. Um, uh, with, with, with Elizabeth May talking about her support for pipelines and Alberta oil. I like, I I don't see that happening. She's alienating her own base. <laughs> yeah. Disagree with that one. <laughs> yeah. She, she's made some missteps and that's a whole other conversation. The whole handling of the Kinsella <laughs> debacle. Yeah. Um, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I mean, that's a topic for another podcast. But ultimately, at the end of the day, you are going to see the Green Party pick up seats, I believe, unless they completely crap the bed during the election. But I I still think on the balance, um, the top issue for voters currently still, according to polling, is climate change. Yeah. And and that's and that's absolutely huge because yeah. this is something that the Conservative Party isn't talking about. The Liberals oh. <laughs> are talking about it and they have greater reach. Yeah, so Ontario, Quebec, the people who have credibility on climate change are the Liberals. Yep. But in BC, the Liberals don't. And yep. so that's why the Green Party is gonna that's pick up seats. Problem. Sorry? That's Christy Clark's fault. Yeah, well, yeah. she's not really a liberal, but I know, and yeah. that's why it's an issue because she's not really a liberal, and yet she represented them. Yeah, but it's also Trudeau's fault for buying the pipeline, and that hurt him in BC to the benefit of the NDP and to the benefit of the Green Party. And so, in the lower mainland island areas, you're going to see the Green Party pick up some seats. Um, in the rest of the province, though, um, you're going to see it be to the benefit of the NDP. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's not funny though. I mean, like being from Alberta, seeing what we see and knowing for a fact 
that Trudeau gave up seats. He gave up votes for Alberta. Yep. It's it's something that I actually admire about Trudeau is I truly genuinely believe that he has put the national economic interest ahead of politics. And even though I think he has been exceptionally underwhelming as a leader, it's one of the things that I do respect about him and that I do believe makes a good leader. I don't think there's enough in other areas to... Yeah, yeah. So it's one aspect that if I was to say has made him a good leader, it would be the fact that he has made decisions that are against what people would perceive to be his best political inter- uh his best political interests and he has actually made decisions that are good for the country as a whole despite alienating segments of his base um there's lots of other stuff that i've been critical of but i on that i will give him credit and uh, I, I do and believe I that a lot of people should. And I, I realize that a lot of people don't Yeah. because I live in Alberta. So I hear this all the time about how he didn't do whatever he should have done. But, you know, uh-huh. it um, this is this has just been a, a fascinating point of contention for many of us in Alberta to say, but the guy bought a pipeline. But it wasn't just that, right? Yes, he bought a pipeline, but he alienated people in BC. He mm-hmm. he lost votes as yeah. soon as he did that. And yeah, I can't help but respect that as well. I mean, not that I had a real hate on for Trudeau to begin with, but... You can't, I mean, hopefully there are a number of people who realize what he gave up for Alberta. It was Alberta's interest. No, there's no chance. And (laughs) this is the problem with politics in today's world particularly, is that nuance is not something that voters have time for (laughs) and understand. And... In Alberta, the problem is, is that with the passage of bills C-69 and C-48, the tanker ban and the new Environmental Assessment Act. Which the tanker ban was really awesome because it was already technically in place. Yeah, it was it was in place by convention for sure. But the fact that he's done those things. it It's a nuanced. Bit of you have to look holistically at all the things he's done, I guess. Right. And so it's the challenge of a politician trying to be everything to everybody. He's trying to be a good environmentalist. He's trying to support Alberta's economic interests and development and natural resources. And those things are in conflict with each other. And it's a no win proposition. There's no way you can thread that needle where you can have hardcore environmentalists say, yes, you're doing things well for the environment and at the same time have energy workers and uh, proponents saying that you've done a good job of supporting our industries as well. And so it's really a situation where he's 
trying to be everything to everybody and trying to keep everybody happy and in doing so has pissed everybody off and it's a no-win situation he's lost seats in british columbia he's lost seats in alberta he'll probably lose seats in quebec okay so and 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 can i say that the uh comparison to when his father was prime minister as well and when he proposed a number of things that Alberta didn't like and apparently nobody else liked either, uh, it was, I, I've looked at the history of this and it's been amazing to me how, how much Trudeau Sr. could have helped Alberta mm-hmm. if everything that he wanted to put into place had been in place had had if everything he wanted to do had been done uh i just can't see how that would have been a bad thing it's a challenge of politics is that you look at positions and and we've talked about this before but you know 30 40 years ago a position that the democratic party held is <laughs> something that now the republican party holds right yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. and so over time values and alignment change and that's the case like something like the national energy program now is actually kind of some of the stuff that Kenny's rhetoric aligns with, but, um, well, just around like not importing foreign oil and relying on Canadian energy and being energy independent, that type of stuff. There's a lot of pieces of that that were included in the national energy program. And so it's funny to see, now, people who are intimately aware of what the details of that program look like and what it would have potentially done for Alberta and how it would benefit Alberta in today's world are calling Kenny and company out on that. But, I, I remember yeah. the day that Prasad Panda put together his uh, private members bill. And I, as soon as I saw that, I was like, I'm sorry, are we advocating for Trudeau's NEP program? Yeah. <laughs> that was that was my quote tweet. I was like, yeah. sorry, what? <laughs> well, and the other thing that in today's political climate that we're seeing as well is that you're seeing conservative politicians are becoming more protective and more about closed borders, where for the longest time, the conservative movement was very much about free trade, free movement of people. And that has completely changed now where democratic or liberal parties have taken up that position where they are pro-free trade, pro-globalism, pro-corporate interest. And uh, so there, there is a change that is occurring there as well. Um, so in terms of partisanship, again, a good segue into the next question. Is it possible, do you think, to admit that what Trudeau did was wrong while also supporting him without being a hypocrite? Mm. And see, I I find this the toughest question because I do think about this all the time, right? I mean, I sent that tweet to you that to you guys that one day, and I was like, "Can I say this without being hypocritical, yeah. even though it had absolutely nothing to do with me?" 
but it was a situation of the country at the time. And that particular tweet that I never sent was in regards to Donald Trump uh, putting sanctions-ish on Canada for uh, our safety. And as soon as I as soon as I wrote it and I said, you know, hashtag Canadian uh, something or other. But the point was that as soon as I wrote it, I was like, oh, you know, we just had like two individuals kill it, an American citizen. And granted, yes, that's the only one this year. But still, I was like, that's hypocritical. Right. As soon as I as soon as I said, can I can I say this without being hypocritical? And so it is tough. Um, honestly, I think that you can. I think that you can say. I think that you can say just the same as conservative supporters will say that the end justifies the means. Mm-hmm. It's, it's it's actually kind of a. It's it's a really difficult and sad thing because when I was thinking about it earlier, like I couldn't write for four days <laughs> because I was like, this is actually really awful. But it's it's exactly the same. Uh, do you do you support Jason Kenny even though he may have cheated to get the leadership? Yeah, they do because what they supported was the outcome. They supported one conservative party. Do liberal supporters still support Justin Trudeau, even if he might have committed some sort of ethics violation? Yeah, they still do. Mm -hmm. Now, will that cause them a problem later? Maybe. I honestly can't say for sure because, again, conservatives support the conservative party. Yeah. So here's my take on it. And it's the problem, in my view, with our democracy and with partisan politics and media and media today as well. Um, and this kind of translates to the whole Charles Adler thing, which Deirdre has a great blog on the website as well on politicalrnd.ca, which you should read. And it's that if you're a partisan, you can't criticize or hold your leader accountable for things that they've done wrong without being seen as a traitor or as unloyal to the quote unquote cause. And to me, that's a fundamental problem. And it's the reason why we've got shitty leadership. And I've seen a lot of sentiment over the last little bit to the effect of, you know, how do I choose? You've got an incompetent leader an invisible leader <laughs> and that. and an unethical leader, right? And the fact is, is that as a voter, we have to choose between those three because we've created this environment where partisans don't hold their own leadership to account for the things that they've done. 
And uh, so I sent out this tweet, you know, justifying misconduct by your leader with the misconduct of other leaders is what leaves us with shitty leadership. We need to hold our own leaders to higher standards so that voters don't have to choose the lesser of two evils or incompetence. And that's the fundamental that problem. Seems so that seems so highbrow, there, Robbie. <laughs> like, <laughs> I have to choose that. <laughs> yeah, but that's that's the problem. You can't criticize your leader if you're in media or if you're a partisan political supporter. You can't. It feels like in today's discourse, criticize that leader without being seen as being disloyal. And actually. Being able to criticize your leader and help them to perform better should make them a stronger leader. But we've got this this sensor perception that if you don't have complete unity and it, it's one thing that I both admire and loathe about the conservative parties <laughs> is that they even when there is some batshit crazy, they really do kind of coalesce around one message and and stick together um but it's also something i really loathe and you see the way that charles adler has stood up against jason kenney and his position on lgbtq rights andrew Shear and his association with racist elements and white supremacist elements without speaking out against it and they're seen as being traitorous to the cause right and what's what's actually happening is Adler is attempting to make Andrew Shear a better leader, but he's being accused of being off the deep end and demented and that type of stuff, which is just awful because that's not actually the case. What Charles is trying to do is make it so that there's a politician that can truly appeal to the broadest segment of Canadian society who will espouse the ideas of small government, limited government intervention, but will also uphold some of the Canadian progressive social values. And that's the problem that we have right now. No, I, I completely agree. It's, uh, oh, it's, it's an unfortunate thing, and I actually felt it as well. When I moved to uh, blogging or writing full-time and to the other things that I was doing, I felt guilty if I was going to criticize the leader, mm -hmm. the Alberta Party. And yeah. that was tough because I wanted that centrist voice, and... You know, it almost, I, I almost want to say it didn't matter what he said, what his platform was, I wanted that centrist voice. Mm -hmm. So I was, I was very, very, very partisan. And, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a fantastic feeling actually to not be partisan when we're talking about federal politics. Yeah. Because I kind of don't care. I mean, I like I do. I do care on a grand scale, but you know, the the party affiliation, like I voted NDP last mm -hmm. time because they had to me the most reasonable platform. The I couldn't vote CPC. The Liberals were the worst party platform for me. NDP was the best one. 
And NDP was the best one for, you know, lots of people. Whereas, again, the Liberal platform, like, they they went way left of the NDP. Mm-hmm. So I voted NDP because they were not scary. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. but, you know, it's... Uh, yeah, it's 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 interesting to not be partisan federally. Yeah, and so to answer your the question, can you admit that what he did was wrong while also supporting him? I guess it depends upon what your values and what is important to you, right? And can you acknowledge that he completely crapped the bed on this and? has made missteps and done things wrong while still supporting him. Of course he can. But the, the thing that concerns me that I'm seeing is people are saying, well, you know, I'll take somebody who breaks the law over the conservatives who don't care about the environment. That is a dangerous slope to get on. And I think to a certain degree that this is kind of started with the, CPC under Harper, who was found in contempt of parliament and some of their ethical lapses, and it's kind of propagated into the liberal leadership as well. And the question I would ask of both liberal and conservative partisans is what laws or ethical standards are you prepared to allow your leaders to break in order to justify protecting jobs or growing the economy? And if all of our laws are up for debate or malleable based upon economic interest, that's a really fucking scary society to be in. Ah, <laughs> oh, I know, I know it is. I know it is. I know it is. I, I do fully agree with you. And And this is where I get into what is the worst of the worst, right? Mm -hmm. And it's really unfortunate because, you know, I grew up with this. I grew up with this sentiment of, you know, they're all bad. So you vote for the least worst of the worst. And I actually, I started writing and I said, you know, is it is it too much to ask that I actually agree with the platform? Because they always say, well, you can't you can't expect to agree with everything. Mm-hmm. Well, but why not? Why why can't I expect that you know this party will represent a lot of things that I think? Well, in a first pass the post system, that's never gonna happen. But generally in first past the post, you wind up with a bi-party system. Canada is a very weird exception where we do have three parties, but you tend to see that more in uh, a um, proportional representation system or a mixed member proportional system where you can have more nuanced views and more niche parties that would more accurately reflect your whole set of policy preferences. Okay. And I will just say that everyone will love this. When I listened to Ed Whittingham 
one of the things that he said during this uh, speaker engagement that he had was he said, we need the people on the left. We need the people on the right. And the reason that we need them is because they show us the path forward in the center. They show us the path forward that, you know, is reasonable. And but we need the people on the left saying you have to do this. Uh, how he put it was, we're going to get off coal by 2030. He said you need the people on the left saying we need to be off by 2025. Why do we need them? Because they're the ones that push us to keep our promise. And the people on the right, well, they're also pushing you as well. They're pushing you into the middle. So when they're saying we don't need anyone telling us that we have to get off coal or whatever, uh, it's a it's it it was really enlightening, and that's why our multi-party system actually really does well for us because we get all of those things at once. We get the NDP saying, "Well, we want this, this, and this," and so you you get that center party saying, all right, okay, maybe we'll do some of that. And you also get the center party saying, you know, I agree with a little bit of what the conservatives are saying, and I will do that as well. So you you get this nice medium yep. of, of, of policy, of, of commitments. And the only reason that you get that is because you have the left and the right. And that could also be why Alberta is, you know, in a state of flux right now because we have the left, the right, and nothing else. Mm-hmm. And there, there is no middle ground right now, which is just frustrating as hell. That's and, a short-term situation, though. That'll resolve itself in the next election. Oh, I hope so. Yeah. Uh, so, but, but yeah, like the the whole thing about the federal NDP and the liberals and the CPC and the green party is that they push each other to do, you know, things that are acceptable. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. a fantastic thing actually. And that's where we do benefit more than the U S with their two party system, because we yeah. have other voices. Yeah. Okay. We are digressing and we will probably continue talking for a couple hours, but I think that we have fully explored this topic. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And uh, apparently I've changed at least one mind during the course of the conversation a bit. Okay, shush. No, no, we're going to go with Ishat. Like, like we're going to, we're going to do some stuff later. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. Okay. And we don't know what the next topic will be, but we'll see you guys soon. Yeah, we're not we're not committing. <laughs> you can find political R and D podcasts, blogs, and our social media tags on our website at politicalrnd.ca. Goodbye, Robbie. Goodbye, Deirdre. <laughs>